Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Will Button. What's going on, everybody? Jeffrey Groman. Hey, y'all. I'm Charles Max Wood from DevChat.tv. This week, we have a special guest, and that's Jillian Rowe. Jillian, do you want to say hi and introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, sure. Hello. My name is Jillian. I am an independent consultant, and I work with biotech companies to design their high-performance compute infrastructure for all their analysis needs. And lately, my main area of kind of research and interest has been enabling real-time data visualization of very large-scale genomics data sets. And the example of that that I always like to give is that I want for my scientists to be able to sit down, open up their browser, choose a data set, press a button, and completely transparently behind them scenes without them even knowing what a cluster is. It starts to crunch all their numbers and analyze all their models and just generally do whatever needs to be done. Nice. That sounds pretty involved. It is. It's fun. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Cool. So, I mean, I'm not even sure where to start. Where, where do you start? Like if you if you start pulling something like this together, where do you start? Uh, so I would say you have to start from the data, like with all data science. Uh-huh. I work specifically in bioinformatics, but I think this would be true of any data science field. You have to have data. Somebody somewhere has to be generating data. And I mean, depending on what kind of data you're generating, it can, be, can come from basically anywhere. You have people generating data on uh, like climatology, on cloud patterns and weather patterns and things like that. I work mainly in bioinformatics and genomics. And then even within genomics, I work mostly in clinical genomics. So I tend to work on a lot of medical studies, studying genetic diseases, studying diseases that have been passed down, studying things like diabetes, just different, different medical diseases, finding out kind of what is happening in the DNA to cause these things. So people will go and they'll, you'll have maybe some doctors or some research scientists that say, okay, we have this idea that if we collect this data, we can find out something about this disease, no matter what the kind of disease is. It might be a completely new disease. It might be something known like diabetes, or I worked in autism for quite a while. So you have people and they are generating the data. And then you have the computational people who come in and say, oh, we need to store that and we need backups and all of your kind of typical IT things. And then you also have a lot of needs for actually analyzing this data. You tend to need big computers. It's not just something that you can spin up on your laptop for the most part. You need what's called high-performance compute clusters, Mm -hmm. which are you take a bunch of computers and you string them together. And then you have uh, this piece that sits in the middle called a scheduler, takes all your data and farms it out and runs your analyses. And then hopefully at the end of the day, you get it all back and you get awesome results and, and funding and papers and all the good things that the data scientists like. <laughs> Very so, cool. So you're doing DevOps, but not just DevOps, DevOps in the bioinformatics space, but not just that. 
but genomics within that. How did you get to that level of specificity? I'm, I'm taking it that wasn't just like a, a job posting you found on Indeed.com, right? No, no. I've always loved science. So I guess if you really wanted to go back, I've always loved science. When I went to college, I thought that I would do biology or like biochemistry or something like that. And I started off and, and as much as I love science and I love biology, I hated the labs I hate, and I hated them so much. Like there are no words that can express <laughs> just how much I hated being in the lab. And it was great because I was so bad at it. Like even, even like the lab people were like, you know, maybe you should find something else. So uh, at that time, bioinformatics wasn't much of a thing because this was longer ago than I'm willing to admit. And I wound up switching over to computational neuroscience that got me a lot of kind of background in imaging and in different diseases of the brain or kind of different neurotypical things that happened. I worked a lot with autistic children for a while. I studied a lot of different diseases. I studied specifically these things called MRI, which are where people actually go and they take pictures of your brain and it's like the coolest thing ever. So if you ever want to have any pictures of your brain taken, go try to find like a research study that you can be, that you can be a control for and you too could have pictures of your brain. So I did that for quite a while. And then I wound up, I wanted to do grad school and I wasn't really like that sure what I wanted to do. And I found a cool looking program that was bioinformatics. And I thought this would be a really good opportunity for me to kind of get a little bit more back on the biology side without having to do the lab because I hated the lab it's so bad. So I did my master's degree in bioinformatics and I wound up getting a job in a bioinformatics core of a medical college. And then that kind of started me on the clinical genomics path. And initially I started off as doing more data analysis, but I like to think of it as kind of over time, I got like more and more meta. So initially I was concerned with the data and then I was like, I want to know about the tools that generate the data. And then I wanted to know about the tools that generated the tools that generated the tools. And then I was like, what is this high performance compute stuff? And I was really lucky. I was in a very, you know, like welcoming and collaborative environment. I spent a long time in academic research and people, you know, people tend to be very open. And so there's, you know, there's always somebody that you could go talk to and you can be like, tell me about this thing that you're doing. So that was, that was a lot of fun. And I wound up working with the IT team quite a bit. And then uh, they formed an advanced computing department, which is, it's a bit interesting because the I guess kind of like your old school IT departments, they can't deal with data science people because kind of the, the historic like processes and ways of working and sitting down and scoping things out for five years, it just, it doesn't work in data science. You'll buy a new microscope or a new sequencer and goodbye, all your processes, they're gone. So they actually had to form a new team within IT just to deal with the biologists and the clinicians and doing, uh, you know, doing the research. And so then I wound up working on that team for a couple of years. And that was what really got me into the high performance computing. And that's kind of like DevOps before DevOps was a thing, I think is the high performance computing. I still do quite a bit of that. This was, you know, before cloud and before all of that. And when I did that, I got really into this kind of idea of you can't just have the data and the knowledge of how to run the analysis to actually make it run within a reasonable time frame. Like one of the most common problems was that people would come to me and they would say, I've developed this analysis and I did it on this subset of my data. And now like I've kind of scoped out the timeline and it's going to take another year to run. And I had, you know, then you can't, you can't have that kind of turnaround time. It just, it doesn't work out. Nobody, nobody would have jobs anymore. And then that wouldn't be good. So what would we, we would do is we would kind of take their analyses, break them apart and figure out that kind of logic for actually optimizing them to get them done within as 
pretty much as quickly as possible within a good time frame as possible, sometimes getting even more analysis out of it because we were able to run it faster. And yeah, I've pretty much been on that path ever since. And then I guess at some point after that, these cloud companies started to come along, AWS and Google Cloud and things. So for the last couple of years, I've been really focused particularly on AWS and working, especially with like biotech startups. I really enjoy working with them. I find them to be very, very interesting because you get these people that have this really particular subset of this really, really interesting thing that probably nobody else has even heard about. You know, maybe like a hundred other people in the entire world study this this particular family of genes, of proteins, of, you know, you can just keep on going down and down and down that line. There's no level in biology that's too small. And so many of them now are able to go out and form, either become freelancers or form their own companies and all of these kind of things because they have this, this cloud computing infrastructure. You don't have to buy a data sensor. You don't have to hire an IT team anymore. So I just, I find all of that to be really, really interesting. So I'm really curious to sort of go back to something you just said. So I think for a lot of our listeners, they, they know that I, I you know come from the security space and we've got a whole ton of data. A lot of it comes, you know, a lot of it's logging data coming off of different tools or different hosts or firewalls or you name it, right? I mean, we IT people, we love to build things that log or we <laughs> like to build applications that log, right? That's what we like to do. We like logs. But then, then you got to do something with that if you actually want to get some value out of all that log data. So, you know, and I feel like what you were just saying really melds with this because I think there's a lot of people out there that have just huge data sets and start to do a little bit of analysis you know maybe we'll take a sampling of that data and we'll get it into some kind of a format where we maybe slip it into like a, a pandas data frame right we're sort of just weekend warrior trying to just work through this and figure out okay what's in this data is it interesting what can I do with it and then you start to figure out that yeah there's some really interesting stuff here but then you hit that wall of, well, now what? So I've got some interesting stuff. I can put it into a database, but then I'm running out of resources or I'm trying to put it into a data frame, but I'm running out of resources or I'm putting into this and I'm running out of resources and I don't know what to do because right, we're not data science people. We're not, we don't have a lot of experience in these you know high-performance computing environments and stuff like that. Like, What would be like the next step? After you sample it, you do some analysis and you figure out there's some really cool stuff here. If I just could analyze it faster than spending the next six months waiting for it to, to come back. My answer is always build a cluster. And like, if it's not build a cluster, it's build a new cluster or maybe build a bigger <laughs> cluster or add more nodes to the cluster that you have. But yeah, st- I, I get that wasn't entirely the answer, but I mean, that, that really that really is the answer that I would start with. So, uh, okay, no, now yeah, no, no, don't worry. No. I'll give you a real answer now. So I would say, like kind of look at your preferred framework in kind of my world that tends to be the Python people like pandas and the NumPy and the PyData kind of universe and the R people like the tidyverse, right? So I would say if you're using Python, there is a really great library called Dask that actually what it does basically is it's meant to be like a transparent sort of API that goes on top of the pandas library and allows you to do, I mean, essentially high performance compute infrastructure, but do it in this very programmatic way that feels very natural to biologists or to any to anybody who's doing any kind of uh, you know data science, anybody who's in this data science space. And I mean, if you're in R, then it's pretty much the same thing. I would say start to set up something like Apache Spark, and that's quite like compliant with the tidyverse. And just I mean, get started with these. You can get started on these. You don't 
have to have a high performance compute infrastructure just to learn a bit about these. You can start them on a single node and maybe just start timing the iterations like, okay, how much data can I actually handle? And then I would say the next step would be to start to look at some of these technologies that allow you to have these data frames, but you don't have to read them all into memory. So that's a big thing that gets people is that they'll have this like, you know, really huge data set. And they're like, well, I mean, we have the 64 gig node. Why can't I just read it all into memory? And it's like, well, that, even some of these data sets, they're getting to be too large for even some of these kind of things. So now there are starting to be all these new file formats that essentially they'll kind of split the work into two parts. So instead of something like pandas that says, I'm going to read the data frame and just stick it in memory, instead it will create almost like a poor man's database. Like, okay, that's not very fair. It's, you know, it's more like a, a kind of a simple database that's on disk. And then essentially it has a bunch of pointers to different data. You can do different indexes. You can pre-populate on different populations. And then when you start to kind of take advantage of these technologies, you can work with much, much larger data sets because you're not reading everything into memory. Cool. I love that. So I can start, I can grab Dask. I can start to do it, you know, even on my own desktop laptop or something like that. And then as I start to see that I'm hitting limitations, that's when I start to maybe move to a dedicated node and maybe start to looking at, start looking at like clustering it and moving slowly towards like an HPC type environment. Mm -hmm. Is that? Yeah, you can take a very incremental approach. That's pretty much what I recommend everybody does. Normally I work with people and I'll try to build their software stacks, throw them on a Docker image, I think for whatever reason, I don't I don't know why this has happened. I think it's wonderful that it's happened. But the entire like PyData and quite a bit of the R tidyverse is kind of centered on Docker and Kubernetes. And pretty much everything that they do is compliant with those. It's not even there's some compliance with HPC, but I would say for like application development and things, you might be better off with Kubernetes. And so for example, Dask has a really nice Kubernetes implementation. There are a lot of different data science communities that are starting to really like kind of hammer in and they're building tools and processes and build pipelines to say, okay, so for example, uh, there's a group called Pangeo and they really specialize in the climatology space. And some of them are also within Dask because, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of overlap with these groups. And they built a bunch of really nice Docker containers that play really nicely with JupyterLab and RStudio. And they have the entire stack that you would need to do any kind of climatology work uh, that of course includes, you know, like pandas and tidyverse and things like that. It's all together in a Docker container. You run it, you spin up the port and you have, you know, the whole environment already set up for you. And then because that's in a Docker container, everything is also compliant with these, uh, these kind of Kubernetes or HPC systems where you're like, well, I, I want, I want to run the same software set, but I just want it on a bigger node. And then you throw it, you throw it on a bigger node pretty much. Cool. So your, your first answer was build a cluster and you were laughing, but yeah. I think there's probably some truth to that as well. What does that actually look like from an implementation perspective of building a cluster? Because I would imagine that there's quite a bit of work in getting it set up and then getting the right applications on it and then provisioning access and storage. What does that process look like for you? Lots and lots of Terraform and cloud formation templates. Like so awesome. many, so much Terraform. Actually, you know what? So... Particularly for Kubernetes, I think, uh, actually for both, we'll go for both. So on AWS, HPC is very, very well supported now. They have their own kind of HPC flavor. It's called AWS Batch. It's actually, you can set it up directly from the AWS console, although, you know, you have to click on a lot of buttons and it is a little bit difficult. Additionally, they have another tool called AWS Parallel Cluster, 
that is really, I mean, you can get started with an HPC cluster in a couple of hours. It's really amazing. And even some of that is babysitting. And initially you would go through the AWS parallel cluster and it has like a wizard, a CLI wizard that you would go through. You would select, okay, I want, I don't know, I want for my head node to be to have this much memory and CPU on it. And then you would go through the different worker node queues. You would specify all of that and then spin it up. And then essentially you write your shell scripts to provision your storage on there. I tend to use uh, the elastic file storage on AWS because it's elastic and then I don't get people calling me up so much being like, hey, we've built up the storage already. When, when can we get some more? So I, I quite like the elastic storage. So you can you can go, you can put all that on there. Yeah, and then from there, it's really, it's really like client by client because the scientific stacks are so different depending on the type of analysis that you're doing. If you're doing climatology, that's one kind. If you're doing genomics, that's another kind. If you're doing high content screening, that's another one. If you're doing imaging. So from there, it's much more difficult to say because you really do have to tailor the software stacks to the type of analysis that's being done. But I think just getting started with just a cluster, I mean, like is earlier, it's easier than ever. So I was looking through your book. One of the things you talk about there was getting the data scientists up to speed and, and productive as quickly as possible. And you reference virtual labs for that. When you talk about a virtual lab, what's that referring to? So to me, actually, a virtual lab is an asset that the scientist creates for themselves. It's also this idea of like literate programming. So, you know, like, so for example, those would be things like Jupyter Hub notebooks or the the R Markdown, I think that's what it's called. I don't, I don't spend so much time in the R universe. But this is the idea that the scientists, as they are going along in their analysis, they're actually documenting what they need. So that might start off with like building the Docker container or using an available Docker container. That's happening more and more now. There are more and more pre-configured Docker containers that have these stacks that people need. And then actually really going through and creating like a set of sort of compliance measures and different sanity checks for their data. So let's say I am going through and I am doing a, a, a clinical genomic study and I'm studying the, the genome of a set of people. And then maybe I also have like some blood work from them as well. So I would have at least like three different data sets if we're lucky. That's usually a lot more than that. And so one of the things that I want to do is I want to go through and I want to make sure that they're clean. I want to make sure that the IDs match up. I want to make sure that if somebody is male in one data set, they're also male in the other data set, that the dates are all cleaned up, that there's no, no like really weird outliers and things like that. And as I would go through, I would actually go through and document each and every one of these processes that I'm doing and write those into code and write wrappers around them. So you are creating a virtual lab. And by lab, I mean more like a, you know, like lab in the, the scientific sense, like pipettes but this lab is virtual. So if like, for example, if you're a scientist, you, you keep a lab notebook documenting everything that you do. And I think that's something that we should kind of borrow from the science people and run with in terms of keeping these kind of like virtual labs, keeping these lab notebooks for, for analyses, for data science projects, for deploying DevOps applications, for whatever you happen to be doing. Document, 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 document. <laughs> it is so true like how often do we like set something up do something like it happens to me all the time like i i did something with with a data frame six months ago two years ago whatever it is and then i like have to like search like what what did i do that time like how did i an analyze this type of data again i don't remember to figure out where did i even keep it did i did i document it where did i put that in those notes it is so true 
Well, you'll like it from the security front too, because you also, you know, you also have to be compliant with your data. With medical data, you can't just run around changing it and not documenting it. That's actually, uh, you know, you're in violation, particularly if it's human data, you have all this HIPAA compliance that you have to take care of. So even if you lose data, if you lose data, you're not being HIPAA compliant. Right. Yeah, so you have sure. to go through and really document the entire life cycle of the data from the point where you get the raw data, you know, or the data in the lab, to the raw data, to the data in the data frame, to whatever you've done with it, to whatever kind of sanity checks that you've done with it. And then also that will tend to inform any kind of post-processing applications, especially in this kind of brave new world where I've noticed, particularly in the last five years after uh, people, they have their analysis, they have their data set, they have it done. They used to just submit it to a paper or whatever, or, yeah, an academic research, usually they would submit to a paper. And then for companies, a lot of times, maybe they would want to sell that as some kind of intellectual property, like maybe sell their findings to a pharmaceutical company. It used to just be like, okay, here's my spreadsheet with my findings. And that no longer cuts it. We're, we're in a brave new world in data science. People want things to be more interactive. They want to be able to, you know, actually go to a browser and interact with the data and really, you know, kind of see for themselves, okay, is this data really acting the way that these other people think that it is? So quite often these virtual apps that people create are then going to be kind of the preliminary step to creating these applications that really showcase their data and their findings, because that is becoming kind of more and more important in this sort of open data world that we're finding ourselves in. I think maybe one really big example of that that most people have heard of uh, was the COVID-19 dashboard, where it showed like all over the world, the different, you know, the different kind yeah. of rises and falls and how many cases were there and all that and kind Johns of thing. Johns Hopkins or? Yeah, I think, yeah, was it from Johns Hopkins? Might that was been. one of them anyway. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was the one you were referring to, but. Yeah, there were, there were quite a few, but I mean, you could think of that as being a data science application and being able to actually really see and interact with the data. You could search it, you could like look for time series data, you could, there was a lot of things that you could do with that. And that's really what's being expected more and more and more of any researchers or any kind of data scientists or anybody. And I found particularly in biology, for whatever reason, biology is like the last holdout in the sciences where we don't train our biologists in anything computational. Like you could graduate with a bachelor's degree in biology and not know how to use a computer beyond like an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> and that's just not the case for any of the other sciences. If you study physics, if you study neuroscience, if you study climatology or geology, all these other fields, they're training their scientists like in this computation. So that's been a big part of my career as well has been working, you know, with biologists that for whatever reason, there are a lot of reasons maybe they would want to get the bit out of the lab and then um, transfer to more of a, it's called a dry lab. So the, the regular lab is the wet lab where they have the pipettes and they're doing the science and then the computer is the dry lab. Right. So with that in mind though, because I, I think that's a really interesting insight or, or observation that, you know, as you said, the sort of like open data world that we live in. And I see it too, like the worst I've seen times when I'm doing some data analysis for a client and they don't want to just see the like the pretty charts and graphs or or tables that we would put together but they want to actually be able to interact with the data i was just just wrapping up a, a um, an engagement where, where we were doing that and i'm curious so with that in mind if i know that that's sort of my, my end goal that i know that i'm going to want to sort of build something that's sort of interactive like right? an interactive uh, interface for for other people to sort of play with the data does that does that sort of push me in one direction over the other of building like a cluster like an HPC type cluster versus moving to 
like containers and Kubernetes or something like that. Like, what what's your sense for like? Is there a, I guess, a backend infrastructure that that aligns better with that sort of model that, that you might be moving to? I would say containerization and Kubernetes has much better support for people doing the application development, and HPC is really more for people doing still the heavy duty analysis. So I would kind of front load it. I would start off with the HPC, do the analysis, do all of your computation, make all your models, clean all your data, do all that kind of stuff. And then when you're ready to create your pretty clickable charts and things, then I would move on to a Kubernetes cluster for doing um, for doing all that. I think there, there's so much good support these days for developing data visualization applications specifically on Kubernetes. So for example, if you go RStudio or JupyterLab, I spend more time in JupyterLab, so I'll just talk about that. They have like so many nice widgets and plugins and so many ways to really, even as you're developing, to make that data interactive. And it's all supported right there in the browser from Kubernetes. You can do things, you can proxy services and develop them. So that's something that I see quite a lot. Even, uh, even some of the application frameworks. So for example, there's this one called MLflow. And that's actually meant to be kind of like a lighter tensor flow, but much more interactive where as a part of the application, you're actually able to go and like click on things and and all this kind of stuff. And that's very well supported in Kubernetes because it has very good support for proxying services and just kind of running arbitrary stuff. So I could be in my Jupyter lab on Kubernetes and I could say run, I mean, virtually anything. If I can run it in a port, I can run it on Kubernetes and I can proxy it with Jupyter lab and have everything right in there. And it's all in my containerized space, no matter like what that is. So your answer is both. I need both. Yes. That's what I tell all my clients too. You need both. You need to sign me up for both. Fair enough. Yes. You need all the clusters all the time. And then some, sometimes it's all three because sometimes I'm like, well, you know, the, the AWS HPC is really nice, but traditional HPC is really nice too. So maybe you want to have both of those around and then add a Kubernetes cluster. And, you know, maybe you need, maybe you need like extra Kubernetes clusters. Maybe you also need to have like a workflow management system for your, you know, for your analysis as a service infrastructure and then have another Kubernetes cluster for your application development. There's a lot of things you could be doing and there's a lot of clusters in the world to be built. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. On that note, there's not only a lot of clusters, and there's a lot of changes to Kubernetes and to Docker, not to mention the changes of the new libraries for JupyterLab and all of those different things. What is your process for staying up to date look like? Because that's a lot of things. I see whatever the Pi Data people are doing. Like they're really <laughs> smart. I go look at them and I go look at their build processes and I'm like, ooh, what are these guys doing today? And then and then I just go get that. So I have uh, I have like a, a Docker or a GitHub repo rather that just builds a bunch of bioinformatics Docker Hub images. I totally stole that, the whole process from the Pangeo people who are also the Dask people. I was like, this is great. This works. I'm going to build a bunch of bioinformatics nice. software stacks and just throw them all on there. So yes, that is exactly, we'll call it collaboration instead of stealing, I guess. <laughs> That's what I do. I steal from them. I go steal from the Bitnami people too. I really like them. Sometimes I just like leave them issues being like, I love you guys. You're awesome. This is the greatest Helm chart ever. I spent like two weeks trying to build this by myself and it was terrible. And this one is so nice. Oh, that's a great <laughs> idea. But that's true. Their Helm charts are just 
phenomenal. Oh, they're beautiful, aren't they? They're like they this, are. this thing of mastery that I just, I love Bitnami. Yeah. If you look at my Google search history, anytime the word helm is in there recently, it includes Bitnami also. <laughs> yeah, of course. Bitnami helm, Bitnami helm Nginx, Bitnami helm airflow. So what are the, whenever you start working with a new team of uh, data scientists, what's the learning curve from their perspective look like? It really depends. I mean, I've done high performance compute training for people that have never even touched a terminal before and are like afraid of their computers. And I've done training for people that's farther along. Uh, even the people who are afraid of their computers. I mean, I used to do HPC training and like really by the end of a week, they were they were able to submit their own analyses and kind of troubleshoot a bit and check logs and sort of look at the output and see what was happening. And, you know, I would just kind of sit in the back of the room with my tea and hang out and, and debug from afar kind of thing. So that was pretty nice. I guess it depends a bit on what they're doing. I would say, I would say there's kind of, there's kind of two different groups of people there. There are some biologists that they study something very, very specific, and they just want to be able to submit their own analyses because maybe they don't feel like waiting around for somebody on the bioinformatics core to get their acts together and come help them out with it. Because uh, So that's another thing. So when you're within a research institute, quite often you have the sort of like umbrella structure where you'll have a single core that's the bioinformatics or genomics core, and they tend to offer computational support to a lot of different labs. Not all the labs have their own computational person. And sometimes they get really sick of waiting and they're like, well, I'm just going to learn how to do this myself, which I think is awesome. And they should. So a lot of times those guys, they they can get up and running really quick because their needs are, you know, basically they just want to be able to submit their analysis. And then, and then once they have their results, they're fine. They know the results better than I do. You know, I don't, I don't even know what's happening there sometimes. And then you also have the people that really want to transition from the lab to the computational side and make that as a career move. They have a much longer path ahead of them, but I mean, they still, they still make it. I've worked with people. There was, there was a woman that I worked with and she really kind of wanted to make that kind of career transition. And I mean, I think within like two years, she had gotten herself a brand new job offer and was doing the computation full time. And she was, you know, she was doing a really good job. And that was really with just, just learning some of these frameworks, just learning NumPy and Pandas and a couple of the visualization libraries and things like that and getting going with that. So I would say it's, it's definitely doable, but it's just, it's hard to say because it really, it depends on how much you want it. And it depends on kind of your background. Do you have any kind of computational background? Do you have a statistical background maybe? So it's everybody's favorite answer. It depends. Nice. <laughs> the, the old fell safe answer. Exactly. So one thing that, that sort of strikes me though, is you know, it sounds like, and my, and my guess is that in bioinformatics, you're probably looking at labs that, you know, that, that, that must have some kind of research budget to be able to afford, right, the computational resources of AWS. And like you said, I mean, you're talking about probably spinning up a lot of different things, maybe even within your own data center, maybe within AWS or another cloud. Do you run into, because you know, this is what we see a lot, you know, what some of the challenges I see on a lot of my clients is that, you know, they're not always well-funded, especially for like a science experiment of, hey, let's start to take a look at these logs and, and, and see if we can do better analysis. And in, in my world, it's, they run up against, well, wait a second, you know, we've already spent a whole bunch of money on Splunk and now we're, we've already spent the money on these other tools. And now you want us to like, what is this going to cost? And we're all sort of scratching our heads saying, well, we don't know because like we've just been talking about, you sort of have to start small and grow and you don't really know what the budget even has to look like because who knows where this is going to end up in six months. 
do you ever uh, do you do you get involved with or do you see those types of conversations or those challenges of just trying to figure out well how do we budget for this? Yeah, budgeting is always a struggle, especially with the cloud, because you don't always know how much you're spending. That's the point, is it's on demand, it's elastic. Exactly. People ask me, well, how much is this going to cost? And I'm like, well, I don't know. How much analysis are you going to do? Like, you know, it could cost nothing. It could cost everything, as far as I know. There's there's really no limit. And then we go through the AWS simple calculator, which is not so simple. So we'll, I mean, we will sit down with people and kind of try to project out their costs. Like, okay, if you're running this many nodes for this long, and try to do some cost savings programs with them. Like we'll do like reserved instances and put life cycle policies on their uh, on their storage and on their S3 buckets. Uh, for the clusters themselves, I tend to do, those are all product, uh, like productized services that I offer. And I have, you know, templates and things and I spin those up and that's just a, just like a one-time cost. And then if they want ongoing support, we talk about that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you sort of proved my, sort of my suspicion or, or my experience as well is that it's it's tough it's not easy to do yeah and no, you just there's quite a bit of luck involved as well sometimes yeah and you, yeah and you don't know like you sort of think well maybe this will stay small but then it, it expands i guess we should always assume it's going to expand because it always expands but but you don't know what that expansion is going to look like is that expansion going to look like you know a few thousand dollars a month or is that expansion going to look like ten thousand dollars a month or something and it's just yeah it, it's I feel like that is definitely uh, one of the challenges that, that we see. Yeah, I try to sit down with people and do like, okay, what's kind of the, the lowest amount you think you'd be using it? And it's also not even just like the computational costs, it's also storage costs as well. And then, you know, do like a low, mid, high and do the projections for a year. And I'll try to sit down with people and do that. Setting up the cluster is pretty straightforward though. I press some buttons, they have a cluster and then, and then I move on. <laughs> Those are the easy ones. Yes. So one of the things you commented in your book about was backed up version controlled annotated data sets. And the example you give was a data scientist who may or may not be fully caffeinated that does an incorrect join and overwrites a data set. How do you... Stocked by how often that happens. Like I can't talk about the times that I know that it's happened because I have signed some very scary non-disclosure agreements, but it happens quite a bit. That's actually reassuring because I lose a surprising amount of data. So it's nice to know that I'm not the only one. Of course, misery loves company. Right. We need support groups for the data scientists. Oh, I just lost a bunch of data. What do I do now? So how do you help them out with that? Because do the data sets come in uh, like known quantities or do they show up in surprising locations? And how do you account for that? So the very first thing that I try to sit down and do with them if we're doing this kind of project is they have to actually figure out what their data is. And you would be surprised by the number of times that they don't they don't know what the data is. They don't know they have this data set. How many rows does it have? How many columns does it have? What's the, like one really easy thing to do is just get the descriptive statistics on any data set, which you can do in any library. You can do it in pandas by just doing dataframe.describe. And if that very much changes, there is something funny somewhere has gone on and you need to go and investigate that. So, I mean, I would say really like step one is catalog your data. As soon as it comes in, catalog the raw data, say, how much of this do I have? How many data sets do I have? If I have these IDs that map back and forth, this happens quite a lot in medical data. So if we go to this example, I have a clinical data set, I have the genomics, I have the blood work, I have maybe some some survey data from their doctors or things like this. Each one of these data sets has like a unique ID associated to the data set itself. And then you have to join that back to like kind of a 
a master document with like all the IDs of all the things. And if you don't have that, you don't have data. So that's always something like that I really, really, really try to stress to people is that step one, you have to know the data that you have. Like I, there have been times where I've worked on a data analysis project and I'm like, this looks really weird. Is it supposed to be like this? And they're like, we don't know. And if the data was collected, I mean, even just like a couple months ago for, you know, especially like doctors, they talk to so many people every day. That's, you know, it's practically like an assembly line with some of them. They're not going to remember what happened six months ago. The nurse who, you know, who took the patient's weight, they're not going to remember if it was this weight or that weight. And maybe it looks a bit funny and maybe it doesn't. And, you know, and all this kind of thing. So you really, you really need to be on top of the data. You need to have a plan for your data before you start generating it preferably. And you need to be just really paranoid. Like paranoia is, is like an excellent personality attribute in a data scientist. They should be deeply paranoid all the time about everything. So it sounds like a lot of it is just formalizing the process before you even get started. Yeah, formalizing it, documenting it as soon as you get the data. I always try to encourage people to write like wrappers around their data sets. So instead of doing, uh, you know, using the, the read CSV from pandas, generate their own that does sanity checks on the data. If you know that the mean of this data should be within this amount, go and check and make sure that the mean of that column is what you think it is and have that as a sanity check. And if it's not there, throw an error and throw like the date and the time and um, and make sure that you're recording all this so that then you can go back and you can say things like, well, I know when I read it in on, you know, last week it was correct because I wasn't throwing these errors, but now it is. And at least if you have that, like you can just quietly go and restore the version from last week and your boss is never the wiser and, and everybody moves on with their lives. And that's great, right? So we always <laughs> really try to encourage people to to have these sanity checks, to version their data, do all the things. Nice. And I suppose backups are never a bad thing either. What kind of backups? Any backups. Backups that work. Let let, let me qualify that. (laughs) (laughs) I can't tell you how many times I work with clients with backups that can't be restored. Like That's not valuable. That was always one of the favorite lines when I worked in IT. Do you have backups? Of course we have backups. Have you restored your backups? And then you get the silence. You don't have backups. Nope. Have nope. you ever tried to restore? Well, we've stored one, you know, once in a while. That person always deletes that one file and we've restored it. But that's it. Yeah, we restored it. We were missing a couple tables. But, you know, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. So so good processes, good documentation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess if you're not, for those of, you know, for those who aren't working with, like, production data, that if you sort of just in your own little, I guess, world or group or, or something, and you've got your data, and you might be the only one doing the research on it, you may not have really good practices around that. And that's probably a lesson learned right there is it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter how many people are looking at it, if that's data that you're actually actively using, that's that's production data, and you need to have production processes around it as well. Yeah, it's, it's so easy to just, you know, make a really simple mistake and save over the file. And then you've, I mean, you've lost uh, data that sometimes takes years and months and yeah. you know hundreds of thousands of dollars to generate and just poof it's gone cool are there other areas i feel like we've we've covered a lot of a lot of ground a lot of territory i, I feel like i've learned a lot so this has been this has been great but are there areas we haven't touched on that you feel like it's you know it'd be good to chat about i don't think so no i mean we talked about my favorite things which are hpc <laughs> and kubernetes and data visualization of, you know, these large scale data sets and how you go about doing that. Those, those are all kind of my hot topics right now. Actually, that's pretty much all that I do. <laughs> I 
That's awesome. Oh, I, I have another thing to talk about. So I guess uh, right now there's this really kind of interesting change that I've seen happening where a lot of researchers, they want to go out on their own because with cloud computing, it's actually doable. So they'll become freelancers or they'll get together with some of their, with some other people that they've worked with and they'll form agencies. And, and I just, you know, and I think this is like a very interesting thing that's happening. And then they need this like analysis as a service type infrastructure. This is something that I'm seeing kind of pop up more and more. So Maybe they already have an analysis that they have. It's in production. They have all the steps. They know you run A, B, C, D, and then you get E. And you know, and I'm starting to see that pop up more and more. So I find kind of the processes and things around that to be very, very interesting. I'm kind of curious if you guys seen that in like any other kind of data science spaces. That's interesting. So, so like, does that mean that like they'll set up their infrastructure for data analysis because it's they have found like a certain type of analysis is repeatable like between clients. So like it's it's really just like literally like import the data, run it through it and spit out the results type of a thing. And mm-hmm. oh interesting. I, I have not seen I've seen that as like an outside party coming in and, and saying, hey, we can analyze your data or we can provide this type of analysis that's sort of, I guess, you know, sort of pre-built and no, I haven't that's really interesting. It involves a lot of locking data because you have to have the logs in case things go wrong. You need to be able to go in there and check and see what happened and all this kind of right. thing. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. It's happening a lot in the field of personalized medicine is where I really see it popping up. So the example with that would be, say I'm kind of in the unfortunate position that I have some kind of cancer. Pretty much nowadays, immediately I would get like blood panel done and my DNA and everything would be analyzed. And then I would actually get a personalized treatment plan for me and for my genetics. And that would happen, not usually through the hospital itself, but a lot of time it's being done through these kind of, you know, these agencies where you have these people that maybe they really, really specialize in this, I don't know, leukemia in adults or something like that. And then, you know, they go through and they'll analyze these people's data and give it back to you. And then you get a personalized treatment plan based on your own DNA. Interesting. Yeah, that's, I don't know. I'm not sure if that's unique to medicine, but it's... uh... I haven't I haven't seen that before or, or heard of that sort of thing in, in other areas. It's really interesting though. I spend most of my time in medicine, so I can't comment, but I'm always like super nosy about what's happening in other industries. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's good. I want to know. I want to find out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find that at least, you know, it's interesting, at least in the security space, I always feel like it should be like that. Like security, security, like we're all seeing the same vulnerabilities, the same issues within given software, hardware, whatever it is. And yet each environment is unique enough that it, yes, the vulnerabilities are there, but the pathway, the, there's enough stuff to make it unique. The business processes are different. The, yeah, the environment is different. The people are different. There's enough things to make them, to make things unique that it's really hard to sort of build something that insecurity that would sort of be able to easily, you know, to what you're describing, like, hey, I can just take your data set from 10 different clients and pump it through my analysis engine and come out with something that would be valuable for you. Yeah, I I can't imagine how to do something like that, at least in my area of specialty. But I don't know. That would be really interesting, though. You should try that because it would, I mean, people are always have new and innovative ways to break things. So you'd have to pretty much constantly update any kind of model that you had going on there. And then you could set up a whole infrastructure around like piping data to your model. And then the model reanalyzes whatever comes in and sees what kind of securities happen. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think 
part of the problem is in security is that we don't, is trying to get any kind of normalized data set between clients is, is impossible. <laughs> I mean, the way that the types of data, how it's logged, where it's coming from, it's so, yeah, it's just. Logging yeah. is hard. Anytime I've had to build a logging system, like things like the Elk stack, like Elasticsearch and Kibana and all that made it a lot easier for me. Right. But it's still hard. It is. It really is. It's it's not, yeah, it's not easy. I mean, there's, there's. I mean, we, we should probably have a podcast just on logging and how difficult it is to put together a logging infrastructure and how much like just infrastructure and people time it takes to build a logging infrastructure that consistently, you know, that works consistently, like it's just a well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we could spend at least an hour talking about that. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. a problem. Like all the, a lot of the bioinformatics kind of like these workflow managers and things, none of them have like very good built-in logging. So everybody was solving this problem over and over and over and over and over again, where it's like, okay, we get the logs and we forward them to Elasticsearch and we do this and that. And now you're starting to get some kind of more production systems that have the logging built in, for which I'm very grateful for, because now I do not personally have to deal with the logging. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's not fun. Hey folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Well, should we move over to picks? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. All right. Well, that means, Charles, you got to go first because you agreed. I know. I have. Yeah, I did. And I haven't been talking a ton. So I just finished this book. Uh, it's called Psycho-Cybernetics. I think I might have talked about it last week because I've been listening to it for a while. But yeah, really made me think about the way I think. And I really, really enjoyed it. Essentially, it talks about envisioning kind of the person you want to be and then, and you know, and how that materializes in your life. And then from there you can, yeah, you essentially get there just by thinking about it. I mean, there's more to it than that, but that that's a lot of the, the idea behind it. And it's turned out to be kind of a powerful thing over the last week or so that I've been, you know, just spending time doing it. I, I have some pretty concrete outcomes that I'm looking at. And yeah, I'm pretty excited about what the possibilities are there. So uh, I'm going to shout out about that. And then I'm going to also just talk just a second about my yard. My yard's kind of a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) And my HOA, they they get on my case about the weeds and stuff. One thing that I found that really works well is if you go down to like Home Depot and you get one of the sprayers that you screw onto the end of your hose. And then I usually go to the farm store. So like IFA Country Store or uh, Cal Ranch or the ones around here. I don't know what you have in other parts of the country, but you go pick up some uh, 2,4-D herbicide and you spray it on your grass it kills everything but the grass and so you have clover and dandelions and all kinds of stuff and uh yeah you just dial that in how you want it and then you just spray it on the grass and it it kills it all 
it's pretty awesome. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick those two things: the 240 herbicide if you're trying to get your lawn back into shape. And I'm also gonna shout out about that book, uh, Psycho Psycho Cybernetic. How toxic is that 240 that you were saying? To the plants, it's, it's lethal. To humans. They tell you not to walk on your grass for a day or so afterward. But I mean, when I'm spraying it on the grass, I get it on my shoes. They smell funny for a day or so, but <laughs> I haven't gotten sick or anything. So how about you, Will? What you got for us? So my pick is the Increment magazine. I have a subscription to Increment. It's published by Stripe. And every quarter they send out a new magazine with a different topic and they just go into detail on it. and it's one of the few things that I read on a regular basis, just because each episode has all this great info, whether it's Kubernetes or containers or on-call management, all these different topics. And they interview different people in the industry on those. It always brings in great insight and I always end up learning. As a matter of fact, there's quite a few episodes that have been the basis for some of the YouTube videos I've done over on my YouTube channel. And then new this month is a crossword puzzle with uh, all the clues are DevOps, different DevOps questions and topics and stuff. And that's probably the first crossword puzzle I've done in, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 years. It's fun. Awesome. Yeah, so increment.com. Increment. Nice. All right. I'm, you know, last week I, I talked a little bit about the project I'm doing with my kids. Or this week they're between school and camp. So I wanted to you know, sort of carve out some time from work and, and just, you know, do something interesting with them. So we did like, we're just finishing up a project where we're using some, you know, sort of hobby wood that I got from Bell Forest. And we're doing like an epoxy project. Like, a, you know, it's just like these small square, but 12 inch by 12 inch. But what I did was uh, some of the wood was like, this just sort of became like these rectangle, almost like a wafer. And um, I picked up, so my pick is, I don't know if you guys are into woodworking at all, but um, I picked up a scroll saw that I thought the kids, you know, because a scroll saw, if you've never used one, is sort of like, sounds and looks sort of like a sewing machine. <laughs> it's like, you know, just <laughs> is sort yeah. of what it sounds like. And this brand WEN, W-E-N, is, you know, you get it on Amazon, you can get it, I think, at like some of the big box stores too. But they're really like inexpensive entry level, but really have some good features. Like it's just, it's just become like this brand of like um, really good hobbyist type stuff that you can really, you know, more affordable to get started. And so it's, it's a bit of a win and a loss. The kids were really excited about it until they saw that it does take some effort to like actually push hardwood through a scroll saw. So they watched me do most of the work, but I think maybe we'll end up getting them to, to do some of that too. So anyway, I'll, I'll probably put a um, a link for um, for that in the uh, in the show notes, but it's it's been it's been fun. It's been pretty cool. I think they've enjoyed it as well. So, Jillian, do you have? I know uh, you know the guest. Um, I'm not sure if you heard about our, our you know we sort of do picks, which is just anything we want to sort of chat about. Could be technology related or or not. But if you've got something, that more than happy to hear you share. I think I'm just going to choose being outside. I escaped the city to New Hampshire, <laughs> and I can be outside, and I can go to parks. And my kids can get out of the house. They're in camp right now. Well, not right now. They're not camp right now. But like in general, they're in camp. And <laughs> it's been great. So I think my That's pick awesome. is going to be shoving my computer in a drawer and going someplace with no internet. I think everybody should do it. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. Nice. Good excited. pick. Good pick. Yes. <laughs> Beach, mountains, 
go. Yes. Go. Get get away from the computer. I love the computer, but get away from the computer sometimes. Yeah. Especially nice. for the kids. Get away from the screens for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. We all get along a lot better, like when we disconnect from the screens and just go be outside, I found. Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. Just just hang out and just be awesome. Yeah. And it's it's funny to me too, because there's stuff around just about everywhere. I mean, it might be a little harder if you're in the city, but yeah, there's plenty of stuff to do out here. So yeah, I, I definitely agree there. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm in Chicago area in Illinois, and I mean, Illinois is flatlanders flatland, and there's still stuff to do outside, even in flatland Illinois. So if we have stuff here, there's got to be something <laughs> nice. everywhere. All right. All right. All right. Jillian, where, where do people connect with you online if they want to find you? I think you guys link to my Twitter and LinkedIn. I am Jillian. If you Google like Jillian Rowe Bioinformatics, I think I'm the only Jillian Rowe in Bioinformatics. So you can come right up. I also have a website. It is dabbleofdevops.com. So you can go there and you can go see stuff. I have blog posts about pretty much all the things that I talk about. I have the bioinformatics solutions on AWS. I have uh books and project templates that are completely free for students and pretty much anybody who can't just throw it on a company credit card. I have them on my store because occasionally companies will buy team licenses and that's, you know, that's always nice for me, but it's pretty much free for everybody else. So if you like anything on there, go check it out, find it, read the blog, get in touch about anything. If you're, if you're also interested in kind of the DevOps data science space. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. I've never been on a podcast before. Thanks for coming. This was fun. Yep. Absolutely. All right, folks, we'll wrap it up here. Until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.